Thank you. Good morning. Great to be with you. Just need to get my PowerPoint up and running here. All right. Again, my name is Charlie Campbell, and um, I never in my wildest imaginations thought that I would be standing before you today to uh, help you um, stand stronger in the faith, because I used to be an atheist. Um, it wasn't until I was 21 years old and was able to get um, intellectually satisfying, reasonable, clear answers to the questions that I had regarding the existence of God and the reliability of the Bible and so on, that I would even begin to consider Christianity. But over a couple of years of um, speaking with Christians and investigating the claims for the Christian faith, I actually became a Christian. Now, the furthest thing on my mind after that, yeah, praise the Lord. But, um, you know, I never thought I'd become a pastor, and even more so did I never think I'd actually become one that would go around and teach at churches teaching Christians how to defend the Christian faith that I used to mock and question so much. But um, I'm glad to be here this morning with you, and I want to help equip you this morning to always be ready to give a defense of the Christian faith. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us that that is God's heart for us, his children, for his ambassadors here in this world that we live in. He wants us to be ready to give answers to the common questions that skeptics and critics of the Christian faith have. God doesn't call a person, you know, a skeptic or an unbeliever, to check their mind at the door and just cast aside their questions, just blindly follow him. He knows that they have reasonable, honest questions, and he wants us to have answers to those kinds of questions. So we're going to talk about some things this morning that will help you defend the Christian faith, but I want to let you know about my website, alwaysbeready.com. So if you're taking notes this morning, jot down that website, alwaysbeready.com, taken straight out of 1 Peter 3.15, where we're told to always be ready. There on my website, on the left-hand side, we have links with um, a ton of information on the cults, uh, different religions like Islam, Mormonism, the Jehovah's Witnesses, questions about evolution and evidence for the existence of God, evidence for the reliability of the Bible and that kind of thing. You click on any of those, you can listen to audio taped um, messages that I've given at different churches around the country, uh, watch different teachings, access notes. In fact, everything I'm going to be sharing with you this morning on the Da Vinci Code is on my website. So don't feel like you have to write down you know, a ton of stuff this morning. You can kind of sit back, relax, write down some of the main points that you like. Then you can go to my website, click on Da Vinci Code, pull up my notes and print them out. Okay, If you want a quick way to easily review some of those kinds of things. This morning, though, we want to focus our time on the Da Vinci Code. How many of you have a family member or a friend who's actually read the book? Okay, most of you. That's, that's the case. Let's talk a little bit about the Da Vinci Code, then we'll pray here again in just a sec. The Da Vinci Code was written by that man, a man by the name of Dan Brown, a former English uh, teacher, and was released in March of 2003, just over three years ago or so. And this book has obviously, as you know, been adversely influencing the way that millions of people around the world think about Jesus uh, the Bible, you know, the reliability of the Bible, the gospel message itself has come under doubt, as well as the credibility of the church, the church at large, even more specifically the Catholic Church. Today, just three years since the publication of this book, this book has sold more than 40 million copies. 
40 million copies in three years. Guys, it is not only now one of the most widely read books of all time, it's actually the second most widely read book in the history of the world, second only to the Bible. And it's only been out for three years. That's what we're dealing with here. This is an absolute worldwide phenomenon. Dan Brown has made $355 million to date in book sales. Time Magazine even named Dan Brown one of the top 100 most influential people for the year 2005 because of the enormous impact that he has made on the thinking of people all around the world through the claims and the things that he has said in this book. To date, this book has been translated into more than 44 different languages. I was just in Israel last year as well as Europe traveling abroad, and I was astonished to see the Da Vinci Code prominently displayed in bookstore after bookstore, even there in Israel, in Hebrew and Aramaic and Arabic and so on. And the views of Dan Brown are obviously going to have an even greater impact in just a couple of weeks. Columbia Pictures, as you know, has made the book into a movie directed by Ron Howard, starring Tom Hanks in the lead role. And so it's going to be... um, you can imagine a huge hit. Think of all the people in our culture today who don't like to read because they've been raised watching videos and you know, playing games on the television and all of that. A lot of kids today don't like to read. You can imagine how many more people will actually go and see this movie. The worldwide movie release date is May 19th, okay? just about two weeks away or so. So we've got a couple of weeks as a church to prepare to answer the kinds of questions and comments that people are going to have after they see this Movie To say, though, that a tidal wave of fresh skepticism regarding the Christian faith is about to be unleashed by the movie would probably be the understatement of the year. I don't really think that the Christian church realizes what we're actually facing here. The Christian church has probably never faced an intellectual assault like it has or is about to experience here with the release of this movie. This is probably the greatest intellectual attack on the Christian faith that's ever happened in 2,000 years from the beginning of the establishment of the church there in the first century. Guys, sadly, this movie is going to give millions of unsuspecting, undiscerning, uneducated people renewed reason to doubt the credibility of the Christian faith and gospel message. Now, that's something, obviously, that would grieve us. But we know that the God we serve can actually take what the devil means for evil and work it for good, can he? Amen. So, that's what we want to do. But, this book, the reason why we need to get prepared this morning is because this book launches repeated attacks against the Christian beliefs, even going so far as to say, quote, almost everything our fathers taught us about Christ is false. Page 235 in the book. Now, some here, maybe even this morning, would say, well, Charlie, hold on a sec here. This is a fictional novel. What's the big deal? Why would you even take time to address this book? And, you know, you're, why, why try to disprove a fictional book? It's a novel. Well, keep this in mind. Although the views of Dan Brown are put forth in a fictional novel, they are said to be based on historical facts. Page one, right when you open the book, Dan Brown gives this whole spiel about all the things talked about in the book are actually based upon facts. Dan Brown has said, quote, one of the many qualities that makes the Da Vinci Code unique is the factual nature of the story. All the history, artwork, ancient documents, and secret rituals in the novel are accurate 
as are the hidden codes revealed in some of da Vinci's most famous paintings. So, yes, it's a fictional novel, but over and over again in the book, Dan Brown claims to be saying things that are based upon historical facts. And he says that his historical information is shared or even supported by religious historians, well-documented history, art historians, all academics, well-documented evidence, and scores of historians. And so the undiscerning reader is immediately disarmed as they begin to read the book because they think, wow, you know, yeah, the characters are fictional, but all these things they're talking about are actually true. I don't know much about history, but Dan Brown has obviously done a lot of research, and all the historians seem to actually be upon his side, and so they just buy right into a lot of the things that Dan Brown says in the book. Well, as we're going to demonstrate this morning, many or most of, all, or of academics and historians actually uh, refute and have a problem with the claims that Dan Brown makes in the book. So, obviously this morning, we want to know that there's a couple of things we can do. We don't just sit idly by and watch the, the faith uh, and the credibility of the Bible get attacked. We can, number one, be a people who are praying for our family members and friends and co-workers and neighbors and so on, who would go see the movie. And then secondly, we can be, like we are this morning, preparing ourselves to answer the questions that people have and will have. Um, now, so to help you be better prepared for the movie, we want, we want to take some quotes right out of the book this morning, put them up on the screen, and then respond to them. And this is a- absolutely biblical that we would actually take the time this morning to do this. Titus chapter 1, verse 9 says that pastors are to exhort in sound doctrine. That's something that Brit does here on a weekly basis. But we're also to take time to refute those who contradict. God wants us to take the time and deal with the false teachings that are swirling about in our society so that the church, his people, and those whom we have an influence over are not contaminated by um, falsehoods. Verse 10 and 11, that same passage there, he says, God writing, or, you know, inspiring the Apostle Paul, he says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, who must be silenced or refuted. Why? Well, because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not gain for the sake of dishonest gain. $355 million in three years. Dan Brown has made by disseminating false information that has confused a variety of you know, people. So let's go ahead and pray right now. We're going to dive right into our study. Heavenly Father, we do just pray that you would bless our time of study. We pray that it would be a time of inoculation, Lord, that we might have our hearts and our minds um, just flooded with truth this morning, God, that we ourselves might not be led astray, but Lord, also that we might um, find this to be a time of equipping, Lord, that we might leave here, Lord, better prepared to deal with the challenging questions and ideas that are going to be on the minds of people who have read the book or who will go see this movie. And Lord, we also pray for that person perhaps in our midst. Maybe they've uh, seen an ad in the local paper or been invited here by a friend, Lord, and today they don't even know you. They're just here to find out more about the Da Vinci Code. We pray today would be a day of enlightenment for them, God, that the lights would come on, that they would see that Jesus Christ truly is God the Son who came to the earth to die on the cross for their sins. We pray today would be the day of salvation for them, God, and you totally lay to rest any of the doubts or concerns they've had about the Christian faith because of this book. Bless this time we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, one of the challenges in putting together a study on the book was deciding which errors to address. The reason why is because the book is literally jam-packed with a variety of errors and deceptions and just outright falsehoods. 
There are easily 50 or more passages in this book that contain errors of one sort or another. Now, obviously, we can't deal with all of the errors in the book this morning. So what I've decided to do is condense down what we'll look at this morning into five general categories, five main areas in which the Da Vinci Code errs. Now, if you're like me, when you're under pressure or put on the spot to actually answer a critic or a skeptic's question, you forget just about everything you've ever learned, right? You can't even hardly recall, you know, John 3.16, you know, for God, you know, something, he loves you, something or another, you know, whatever, whatever it says, I don't know. Well, so if we, if you want to have five talking points about what you believe is wrong with the Da Vinci Code, write down or make a mental note of that acronym. The C is going to remind us of a particular point. The O is going to remind us of a second point and so on. And we'll get right into the C here in just a sec. First, let's talk about the plot of the book quickly. I'm sure many of you probably have never even read the book. So let's talk a little bit about what the book is about. The Da Vinci Code is a modern-day murder mystery. The book opens with the mysterious murder, a gruesome murder, of the museum curator at the Louvre Museum in Paris, there in France. If you've been to Europe, you've probably been to that museum. The Louvre is the world's most famous museum. It houses the Mona Lisa painting by Leonardo da Vinci. Well, the murder in the opening scenes of this book leads the book's two main characters by the name of Robert Langdon, a Harvard professor who will be played by Tom Hanks, and another character by the name of Sophie Nouvelle leads them on this pursuit all over France and England trying to solve the murder. Now, as they try to unravel the mystery of this murder, they discover in their journeys numerous so-called facts about Christianity that Dan Brown says have been uh, suppressed by the Catholic Church for the past 2,000 years, but thankfully handed down by this secret society known as the Priori of Zion. Now, according to Dan Brown, the secret society, the Priori of Zion, included such well-known persons as Isaac Newton and Leonardo da Vinci, all of whom lived, you know, back in the, uh, around the 16th century. Now, Dan Brown, and this has been exposed by numerous scholars who've written books to refute the Da Vinci Code, but Dan Brown based what he said about the existence of the Priori of Zion and the inclusion of these well-known persons of history. He based what he said about this, the secret society on documents that were exposed in a French court just a few years ago as having been forged in 1967 by a man by the name of Pierre Plantard that man whom you see on the screen. This has totally been exposed in France. Most of the people who live in France uh, know this. Dan Brown, I believe, was hoping you would not find that information out, living here outside of France. Even the BBC, a European news agency, similar to CNN perhaps, here in the United States, did a television special in 1996 that helped expose this fact, the fact that these writings about the existence of this Secret society, known as the Priori Zion, were actually part of an elaborate hoax staged by this man, Pierre Plantard. Now, in spite of these facts, though, Dan Brown asserts in the book that Leonardo da Vinci, who supposedly belonged to this secret society that holds information that could totally overthrow Christianity if they were ever, ever known, he says that da Vinci hid clues or codes in his paintings that if we could only decipher what they actually mean, you know, we would actually come to the conclusion that Christianity is a huge farce 
okay? And something that was never even intended to be the way it is today. And so we have the title of the book. This is why the book is called The Da Vinci Code. It has a lot to do with the supposed secret little things that Leonardo da Vinci sought to tuck, tuck away in his paintings that would help lead future generations, hopefully, to discover the truth about Jesus and Christianity. Now, we're not going to deal with all the hidden codes and all the paintings. We don't have time. But I'll, note, I'll point out one to you right here. One of the outlandish things that Dan Brown suggests in his book is that this person, just to the left of Jesus in the Last Supper painting, is not a depiction of the Apostle John, as art historians have told us down through the centuries, but that it is actually a depiction of a woman that it is Jesus' wife. Now, granted, that person in that painting does look slightly feminine, but that is actually the way all of the artists from that Florentine period depicted John. He actually was um, numerous times and by other artists depicted with kind of feminine creatures, or creatures, feminine features, rather. I sometimes uh, mess up my words, obviously. But anyways, um, you know, in, in other paintings by other artists he has long wavy red hair and that kind of thing leonardo da vinci simply depicted john the apostle in the same way that was he was commonly depicted in his time but i have a question for dan brown here regarding this painting if that is supposed to be jesus's wife in the painting and if this is a painting of the last supper at which all of the disciples were present why are there only 12 people seated with jesus instead of 13 how many disciples did jesus have 12, right? Okay, now stay with me on this. If that's Jesus' wife there, the person with the circle around the face, there should be 13 people at the table with Jesus, right? 12 disciples, we can do the math there, plus one wife equals 13 people with Jesus. Okay, good. Now, let's go ahead and count the people here in the painting the Last Supper. We've got one, two, three, four. This fifth one's a little hard to see. The paint's been peeling away for centuries now. Number five, six. 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. That's interesting. I wonder who those 12 people could be. Well, it's the 12 disciples, just like Leonardo da Vinci tells us. You know this? You don't even have to take my word for it, that that's not John uh, or you know, the, the wife of Jesus. In his preliminary sketches of this painting, Leonardo da Vinci actually tells us the names and the locations of each of the disciples seated at the table. And guess what? He tells us that that person is John the Apostle, not Mary Magdalene, Jesus' wife. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about Jesus' supposed marriage to Mary Magdalene here um, a little later. Now, one last question, though, regarding this painting is this. What in the world is a painting that comes along 1,500 years after Jesus' life prove anyways? You you following me on that? Even if that was a depiction of a woman, it in no way proves that Jesus was actually married. Da Vinci wasn't even around in Jesus' time. This guy lived 1,600 years after Jesus' life. Okay? So, I think that's worth noting. Now, let's get into the acronym here and note the first problem we have with the Da Vinci Code. The C reminds us of how the Da Vinci Code errs when it speaks about the corruption of the scriptures the corruption of the scriptures here's a quote right out of the book 
He says the Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. Man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times, and it has evolved through countless translations, additions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. Now, first off, we agree that the Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. Okay? If you've been led to believe that here at this church, come and whisper, you know, tell me that later at the table. We'll have a little talk with Britt, but I'm sure that's not the case. You guys know that what the Bible says. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, tells us that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. See, the Bible teaches that God superintended, or in other words, he came alongside the writings of more than 40 different authors whom he inspired to make sure that what he wanted written was actually written. And these men of God penned the very words that God would have them to pen. We also agree with Dan Brown that the Bible has been translated into numerous translations. Um, to date, it's been translated into more than 500 different languages. But for Dan Brown to continue that popular myth today, that the Bible that we have today is unreliable because it's evolved through numerous additions and revisions, betrays the fact that either Dan Brown is, number one, ignorant of the facts surrounding the transmission of the biblical text, or, number two, that he has purposely thrown aside the facts to advance his own agenda. Now, there are two pools, if you're taking notes, two pools of evidence that prove conclusively that the text of the Bible has not undergone corruption or change down through the centuries. We know beyond the shadow of a doubt that our modern-day translations are accurate copies of the originals. How do we know that? Number one, if you're taking notes, evidence that the Bible has not been corrupted. Number one, the manuscript evidence. Number one, the manuscript evidence. What is a manuscript? A manuscript is any surviving handwritten copy of an ancient document that predates the invention of the printing press in 1455. Okay, Before the invention of the printing press in 1455, Bibles had to be and were meticulously, very carefully copied by hand by Jewish scribes for the Old Testament, and the New Testament was copied by Christian monks who dedicated their life to preserving the Word of God carefully, letter by letter, word by word. Well, today, there survives some 24,000 partial and complete ancient handwritten manuscript copies of the New Testament, not to mention the hundreds of copies that we also have today of the Old Testament. We have these. They're, on, they're being held in a variety of different museums around the world today. And these manuscript copies of the Bible have allowed biblical scholars and textual critics to go back and verify that the Bible we have today is the same Bible that the early church possessed nearly 2,000 plus years ago. There was an amazing discovery in 1947. Perhaps some of you remember this. There in Israel, a shepherd boy who was tending his father's sheep in Qumran, which is just north and to the west of the Dead Sea, he made an amazing discovery while looking for one of his father's lost sheep. And if you go to Israel today, you can actually visit this very location I'm talking about now and see the ruins of this society that used to live there in Qumran. There in Qumran, in a hillside cave that had laid untouched for nearly 2,000 years, this little shepherd boy discovered an ancient, hidden 
collection of handwritten copies of the Old Testament books. These scrolls have been hidden in 11 different caves there up in the hills by a group of Jews known as the Essenes more than 2,000 years ago. They realized they were about to be annihilated by the Romans, and so they hid their two most precious uh, treasures in the caves, hoping that if they survived, they'd be able to go back and get those. They hid their money, and they hid their scriptures. Well, the Jews came in to squash this Jewish revolt that was taking on or taking place throughout the the nation of Israel there and they wiped out the Essenes and for 2,000 years their money, thousands of silver coins and hundreds of manuscript copies of the Old Testament laid absolutely untouched until 1947 when that shepherd boy discovered them. These scrolls and writings are now known as the Dead Sea Scrolls I'm sure you've heard of them, and were represented, or there within the scrolls, they found a representation of every single book of the Old Testament except the book of Esther. The book of Esther, for one reason or another, was not available to the Essenes to have in their library. This is considered one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of all time, and it sheds a lot of light on this whole issue of, of whether the Bible we have today is trustworthy or not, whether it's been accurately transmitted down through the centuries as it was copied you know, off of the ancient um, manuscripts from the Hebrew and the Greek. Here we have a photograph of, on the screen, of the book of Isaiah. This is the scroll of the book of Isaiah found there in Qumran. Scholars have dated this to at least a hundred years before Christ. They opened this thing up. It was 24 feet long. Not a single verse missing as compared with a modern day translation of the Bible as compared with the book of Isaiah. All 66 chapters perfectly intact. Here's some of the containers that housed the scrolls and kept them in such good shape for more than 2,000 years. And these, these containers are on display today in the Israel Museum. You can actually see some of the stuff with your own eyes. These Old Testament manuscripts found there in Qumran predate the time of Christ's birth as far back as the 3rd century B.C., very close to the completion of the Old Testament that occurred about 400 B.C. Now, it's manuscript copies like these that we've just briefly been touching on here that verify that the text of the Bible has been accurately handed down through the centuries. We can compare our modern-day translations with ancient copies of the Bible to make sure that it says the same thing that it did more than 2,000 years ago. These manuscripts are housed in places today like the British Museum, the Cambridge University Library, the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C., Oxford University, uh, the National Library at Paris, the Israel Museum, and elsewhere. You can see some of these manuscripts with your own eyes. I've gotten to see them myself. They're fascinating to behold and realize, wow, this manuscript copy of the Old Testament is older than the time of Christ himself. Fascinating stuff to see. But keep this in mind. Even if we did not have any manuscript copies of the Bible, there's another way of verifying that the text of the Bible has not undergone corruption, and that is by examining the writings of the church fathers. So if you're taking notes this morning, evidence number two that the Bible has not been corrupted is the writings of the church fathers. Now, by church fathers, we are referring to those leaders in the church of the first three centuries A.D., following the original disciples, men like 
Justin Martyr, Eusebius, uh, Tertullian, Polycarp, and others. These guys, in their writings, in their commentaries on the Bible, in their correspondence with one another, and in their letters to different churches, quoted, they preserved for us the New Testament scriptures alone by quoting the New Testament more than 86,000 times in their writings. And guess what? Their writings all survive to this day. You can buy the entire encyclopedic looking set of the writings of the church fathers of the first four centuries. about this long. 30 plus hardback volumes. It looks like the Encyclopedia Britannica set containing all the writings, all the commentaries, all the different letters that the church fathers wrote to one another in the different churches. And over and over again in their writings, you encounter the fact that they quoted and by quoting preserved for us what the Bible used to say 2,000 years ago in their writings. In fact, there are enough quotations from the early church fathers that even if we did not have a single manuscript copy of the Bible, scholars could still reconstruct 99.86% of the New Testament we have today just from their writings. There's only 11 verses that scholars today have not been able to find in the writings of the church fathers that they did not preserve for us. Now, that doesn't mean that those verses weren't originally in the Bible. It just means they did not cite them. Think of all the verses you've never cited in your writings, right? You guys have all attached a verse at the end of your emails occasionally trying to encourage somebody. We've maybe cited, what, a hundred verses at the most probably in our writings in our life. These guys preserve the entirety of um, most of the Bible, for us in their writings. So when a Mormon comes along today and says, well, you know, we need another testament. We've got the Old Testament, the New Testament, and now another testament. You know, in 1830, Joseph Smith, you know, published this one. And, and you say, well, no, I just, I like to stick to the Bible. And the, this is what Mormons say. They say, well, you know, we can't trust the Bible because it hasn't under, you know, it's, it hasn't been accurately preserved down through the centuries. It's undergone corruption. Well, that's, that's a joke because to prove that the Bible has undergone corruption, you would have to go back in time and hold up an ancient copy of the Bible and say, hey, this is what our modern day translation says, but this is what the Bible used to say. Look, it's undergone corruption, but that's the very thing the Mormons and the Muslims cannot do. Because when you go back in time and look at an ancient copy of the Bible or the ancient writings of the church fathers, you see that the Bible says the same thing as it does today. Kindly ask your Mormon friend on the doorstep what evidence they have that the Bible's undergone corruption and watch them smile and say, good question, you know. And <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, tells us that the grass withers, the flowers fade. Those, those, those things undergo change and corruption. But the word of our God stands for how long? Forever. God has put that promise, that seal of protection upon his word that every generation could consider and know for certain that his word is worthy of our trust. Jesus said something very similar long after the time of Isaiah in the New Testament era. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, he said, heaven and earth will pass away. Those things are undergoing change. Those things are subject to the, law of the, second, the second law of thermodynamics. But my words will by no means pass away. Where are Jesus' words recorded for us? In the Bible. Try as you may, by any means possible, Jesus is saying, 
to do away with my words, it's not going to happen. You'd be fighting against God himself. God loves his word and he protects it throughout every generation. For Dan Brown to assert that the Bible has evolved through countless additions and revisions so as to suggest that the Bible is now unreliable, again, demonstrates either his ignorance of the facts or his willingness to go against the facts. Now, let's move on to our second point. The O in our acronym reminds us of how the Da Vinci Code airs when it speaks about the origin of the deity of Christ. The O reminds us of how the Da Vinci Code airs when it speaks of the origin of the deity of Christ. Lee Teabing is one of the main characters in the book. There's a photograph of the actor who will play the part in the forthcoming movie. He says this, at this gathering, he's speaking of the Council of Nicaea, which we'll make some comments here in a minute. He says, at this gathering, many aspects of Christianity were debated and voted upon. The date of Easter, the role of the bishops, the administration of sacraments, and of course, the divinity of Jesus. Until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless immortal. Now, Sophie, she's one of the other characters in the book. She says, hold on a sec here. Not the Son of God? They, they didn't, the followers of Christ didn't think that Jesus was the Son of God up until the 4th century? They just thought he was a mere mortal man? Ah, Lee Tibing says, right, right. Jesus' establishment as the Son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea. Sophie says, hold on. You're saying Jesus' divinity was the result of a vote? Lee Tibing says, a relatively close vote at that. Now, Dan Brown suggests here in the book that the deity of Christ was a late invention by the church, that it was first proposed at the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century, and that it barely passed. That there were those people there that really knew the truth, and they couldn't believe that people were trying to pass a vote about Jesus actually being, you know, God. And, and they tried to stop it, but they were just slightly outnumbered by the people who wanted to make up this teaching that Jesus was actually God. Now, for the person who is unfamiliar with the Bible or church history or what happened at the Council of Nicaea, which is most of the people alive today, this might easily be believed. You think, wow, I never knew that. I never knew that that was invented then. Well, let's talk about the Council of Nicaea for a moment and let's stick to the facts. What was the Council of Nicaea? The Council of Nicaea was a gathering together of 318 bishops church leaders from all over the Roman Empire, in A.D. 325, it happened, it was basically a large pastor's conference. It happened in the city of Nicaea, okay, that's why it's called the Council of Nicaea. Nicaea is located in modern-day Turkey. Now, the purpose of this meeting was to discuss doctrines related to the person of Jesus. Now, this meeting was hardly the place where it was first proposed that Jesus was actually God, as Dan Brown suggests. That belief that Jesus was the Son of God or God the Son was already firmly in place as the popular teaching of the church. The reason why they got together was because of that man on the screen, a man by the name of Arius. He was a popular heretic in the 4th century. He was a man who was causing disputes because of his false teachings throughout the Roman Empire um, as it related to the person of Christ. 
Now, one of, the, one of the errors that he had made in his teaching was that he was denying the eternality of Jesus and teaching rather that Jesus was just simply a created being. We might call him the first Jehovah's Witness. It's exactly what they believe today. Now, the followers of his teaching, uh, known as the Arians, held that the divine nature of Christ was only similar to God. You know, Jesus, he's he's kind of like God. He's kind of a representation to us of what God is like, but he's not the same. He's certainly not God in human form. Well, the Council of Nicaea, this gathering together of the bishops, condemned Arius' teachings and reaffirmed what the Bible already taught, that Jesus had and has the very same nature as God himself, just like Hebrews chapter 1 Verse 3 makes clear, and others that we'll note here in just a second. Now, was it a close vote as Dan Brown seeks to pass off on the undiscerning reader? You tell me. You can do the math. There were 318 bishops who were called together to this meeting in Nicaea. As for the vote that was finally taken, only 5 out of the 318 dissented. They decided they wouldn't vote. And only two of those five refused to sign the resulting resolutions, which reaffirmed the prevailing view of the church, that Jesus was and is God. Hardly a close vote, as Dan Brown suggests in his book. Now, allow me to read to you for a minute here a portion of that resolution or that creed that these bishops signed off on, that they passed there at the Council of Nicaea. It is called the Nicene Creed, okay, because it came out of the city of Nicaea. Here is an excerpt from what they said in this statement. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. Amen. Now, you can see here with your own eyes, just by perusing through the Nicene Creed, the very high view of the early church leaders regarding Jesus. They refer to him here as God of God, very God of very God, just to emphasize what they actually believe to be true according to the scriptures. Guys, 316 out of the 318 early church leaders signed on to that resolution. Dan Brown calls a 316 to 2 vote regarding Jesus' deity a relatively close vote. That guy needs a calculator. We've already demonstrated how he miscounted the disciples at the Last Supper, right? Now he miscounts the vote at the Council of Nicaea. It was 316 to 2, Dan. Can you guys imagine a basketball team being totally annihilated, 316 to 2, like in a basketball game, and then the losing team going around afterwards and telling people, well, you know, it was, it was a relatively close game. Now, if you were at the game, you would just, 
You'd put down your remote control for your PowerPoint. And you'd say, what in the world are you talking about? You guys had the ball for like three seconds. You scored one basket. They scored 158 baskets. It wasn't a close game. You guys got totally annihilated out there. Right? 316 to 2, Dan, is not a close vote, buddy. Oh. So, guys, it's a historical fact that the deity of Christ was the prevailing view of the church long before the Council of Nicaea. In fact, nearly 300 years before the Council of Nicaea, even before the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, his deity was already being acknowledged by his disciples. For example, in the New Testament, in the New Testament documents, all of which were completed before the close of the first century, we see the disciples affirming their belief that Jesus was actually God in human form. John chapter 20, verse 28. Thomas sees Jesus resurrected with the wounds in his hands and the, the, where the, the spear had gone into his side as his blood was shed for our sins. And Thomas got down there before Jesus and called him, My Lord and my God. Jesus didn't rebuke him. Jesus actually commended him for his faith and for his belief. John chapter 20, verse 28. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Paul the apostle called Jesus our great God and Savior. John the apostle called Jesus God in the very opening verse of his gospel when he referred to the fact that the word that had become flesh, a reference to Jesus, was actually God himself. John 1.1. 1, 1. Jesus himself took the name of God, spoken to Moses through the burning bush there in Exodus chapter 3.14, the word I am, that, that, that title, and applied it to himself in John chapter 8, verse 58. The Jews immediately understood what he was claiming to be, that he was claiming to be God himself, and they took up stones to try to stone him to death. He barely escaped with his life. And elsewhere, we read of Jesus referring to God as his own father. Again, resulting in some of his listeners trying to stone him. Why? Well, John the Apostle tells us it was because Jesus was making himself, quote, equal with God. John chapter 5, verse 18, as well as John 10, verse 33. Even the Old Testament prophet Isaiah foretold the Messiah's deity six or seven hundred years before Jesus was even born. We read of this fact that the Messiah would be God himself. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For unto us a child is born. Speaking of his humanity, that he'd come into this world born as a baby. Unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Speaking of his deity. In fact, God, the Father, in Isaiah chapter 10, just one chapter to the right of this passage that we're mentioning here. In Isaiah chapter 10, verse 21, God the Father refers to himself in that very same title as mighty God. Very clearly prophesying in the Old Testament that the Messiah, when he would come, yes, he'd be born as a man, but he would also be Emmanuel, as we sang earlier. God with us. Now, in addition to the testimony of Isaiah and the disciples and Christ himself, we have the testimony of the church fathers in the second century, which is still long before the fourth century council of Nicaea. These men, like Ignatius, uh, Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and Clement of Alexandria, to name a few, over and over in their writings affirm that they also believed 
that Jesus was God incarnate. In fact, in their writings, they refer to Jesus very clearly as Jesus Christ, our God. Um, Here's another example. God incarnate or God and man, manifest deity, that he's our Lord and God, that he's my God personally. Okay, just to cite a few references from the second century church fathers. Now, not only do the biblical writers and the early church fathers affirm that the deity of Christ predates Constantine, but now archaeology has also affirmed this to be the case as well. Perhaps you caught the story November 5th, 2005. There in Israel, Israeli archaeologists made an amazing announcement just about five or six months ago. There in Megiddo, a town in northern Israel, archaeologists discovered the remains of one of the oldest, or actually the remains of the oldest Christian church ever discovered to date. And evidence reveals that this church that they did excavation at dated as far back as the 2nd or 3rd century A.D., still a century before the Council of Nicaea. And the remains of this church um, included a Greek-styled mosaic entryway that bore an amazing inscription. And you can see the photographers all gathered around and take photos. This is one of the most amazing archaeological discoveries in our time, if not ever, regarding the Christian faith. What you're about to see is the very first archaeological discovery ever mentioning Jesus Christ. Now, we know Jesus was certainly a historical person. Skeptics have challenged that. Uh, perhaps you heard of the priest a few months ago that was being taken to court in Italy for saying that Jesus actually existed, and atheist was suing him. Well, the judge threw out the case. I mean, there's a ton of literary evidence that Jesus actually was a historical figure. He's written about in the New Testament documents. He's mentioned by Flavius Josephus, a first century Roman historian. He's talked about by the Jews in their writings, known as the Talmud, and elsewhere outside of the Bible. But for a lot of skeptics and atheists, eh, writings like that, literary evidence, is not good enough. Well, why not? Well, because, you know, maybe the Christians tampered with Josephus' writings. Maybe they just doctored up those manuscripts to make it appear, you know, that Jesus actually lived. So skeptics, like myself formerly, you know, they like to see things written in stone. Just in time for the movie, God is giving them the desire of their hearts. Here we go, right on the screen. Very first mention of Jesus, archaeologically speaking, yet to date. Here's a different angle. You'd have to be able to read Greek to actually read the whole sentence. We're going to uh, translate part of it here for you in a sec, though. There it is. As you would walk into the church, you would walk right over this statement. Now, Fox News did a story on this, and here's an excerpt from the lengthy article they did on it. This is what they said, quote, Two mosaics inside the church, one covered with fish, an ancient Christian symbol that predates the cross, tell the story of a Roman officer and a woman named Akitos who donated money to build the church in the memory of the mere mortal man, Jesus Christ. Oh, I'm sorry, I misread that. No, no, this church was dedicated to who? The God, Jesus Christ. You'd walk right into this church, that's the first thing you'd be seeing. Whoa. I'm I'm walking right in. This church is set apart and dedicated to the God, Jesus Christ. Guys, this is exciting. This archaeological discovery not only helps reinforce the fact that Jesus actually did exist, but it helps establish the fact that the church actually believed 
that Jesus was God long before the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century. What did that inscription say? That the church was dedicated to the God, Jesus Christ. For Dan Brown to suggest in his book that up until 325 A.D., Jesus' followers viewed him as a mortal man, again demonstrates his willingness to suppress the facts. We have the sayings of the disciples, the writings of the church fathers, this discovery in Megiddo, all of which we believe soundly and thoroughly refute Dan Brown's attack on the credibility of the Bible and the person of Christ. Now, so far we've looked at how the Da Vinci Code errs when it speaks of the corruption of the Scriptures, number one. Number two, the origin of the deity of Christ. The second half of the study goes a little quicker. Let's examine the D. And the D in our acronym reminds us of how the Da Vinci Code errs when it speaks about the development of Sunday worship. The development of Sunday worship. Here's a quote right out of the book. He says, Christianity honored the Jewish Sabbath of Saturday. Back up here. We'll stop for a sec right there. He's basically saying, if you examine the context of the book, that Christians, they used to gather together and worship and study the Bible on Saturdays. But, he says, something happened. He says, Constantine, that Roman emperor of, you know, who was born around 274 A.D., he says, Constantine shifted it to coincide with the pagans' veneration day of the sun. To this day, most churchgoers, even those at Reality and Carpinteria, attend services on Sunday morning with no idea that they are there on account of the pagan sun god's weekly tribute, Sunday. Guys, this is absolutely false. All available evidence indicates that Christians were meeting together on Sundays long before the time of Constantine. If you're taking notes, jot down those two verse references. Acts chapter 20 verse 7, as well as 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, both of which were written 200 years before Constantine was even born, talk about believers coming together, breaking bread, and studying the Word of God on, quote, the first day of the week. Last time I checked a Roman calendar, that was Sunday, a day that the early church referred to as the Lord's Day in Revelation chapter 1. Verse 10, gathering together on the first day of the week had nothing at all to do with Constantine. Guys, he was not even born until 274 A.D., long after many of the disciples and church fathers had actually even died. And the church had long been meeting together on the first day before that. Their gathering together on the first day of the week had everything to do with the fact that Sunday was the day of Christ's what? Resurrection number one and all of his post-resurrection appearances. Anywhere in the New Testament where we're told the day of the week that it was when Jesus would appear to the disciples, we're told each time that it was the first day of the week. The early church began to expect Jesus to, to, to show up and to fellowship with them on the first day of the week. And so from very early on, the church immediately began to meet on the first day of the week to meet and fellowship with Jesus himself. And it has never changed since. From ever, very early on in the, you know, the early period of the church to this day the church has been gathering together on the first day of the week to worship the lord now not only does the bible tell us that the early christians met on the first day of the week there are other numerous early extra biblical sources that mention this as well again the church fathers men like ignatius 
Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, um, Cyprian, all of which lived in the first and second centuries. In their writings, they tell us that their church or their home fellowship they're, they're part of met together on the first day of the week to break bread, to fellowship, to sing hymns, to study the word of God, and so on. Even this man, Pliny the Younger, who wasn't even a Christian, he was a Roman governor over the Roman province of Bithynia between 111 and 113 AD. In his writings, he mentions the fact that the Christians underneath his jurisdiction gathered together on the first day of the week to worship Christ. And then there's other sources as well that make this clear. Guys, all of these extra-biblical sources predate Constantine, some by 200 years. So, once again, Dan Brown receives what kind of grade in history? Now, let's look at the E in our acronym. This will be our fourth talking point. We have a problem with the Da Vinci Code when it speaks about the establishment of the canon of Scripture. The establishment of the canon of Scripture. Let's define our term here, canon. The word canon is a term that simply means standard. We're not talking about guns, you know, that shoot cannonballs. Slightly different spelling. The word canon, or when we speak of the canon of Scripture, we're referring to the standard collection of 66 divinely inspired books that God determines should make up uh, the Bible. When it comes to the canon of Scripture and how it was established, again, Dan Brown makes many inaccurate statements in the book. We're going to look at just a couple. For example, he says this. This is outlandish. He says, more than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament. More than 80. But only, or he says, and yet only a relative few were chosen for inclusion. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John among them. This has caused scholars that have read this book just to throw up their hands in laughter. Because... Even if you consider the fact that, um, or even if you count all the heretical apocryphal writings, okay, the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip and so on, even if you count all those churches that the, or those writings that the church rejected in the second and third century that were written by the Gnostics, there are less than 20 documents in the first four centuries of the church that could even be called accounts of Jesus' life, let alone Gospels. Scholars read a statement like 80 Gospels and like, where in the world does he get his figures? Even if you count all those other writings, there's less than 20 documents. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, Sophie, right on the tail end of this quote in the book, she says, well, who chose which Gospels to include? How do we, how do we end up with the four that we ended up with? Lee Teabing says, aha, the fundamental irony of Christianity. The Bible as we know it today was collated by the pagan Roman emperor Constantine the Great. If it wasn't for Constantine, according to Dan Brown, we wouldn't even know what day of the week to meet on, let alone what books of the Bible to read. He gives Constantine a ton of credit for things that Constantine is probably, would probably be rolling over around in his grave today uh, to hear said about him. Dan Brown has seriously erred once again. Constantine, guys, had nothing at all to do with the collation or the canonization of the Bible. Not a single thing to do with it. The Old Testament was compiled by the Jews long before uh, Jesus was even born. It had even been translated into different languages by the time Jesus was born. It was certainly done long before the time of Constantine. As for the New Testament, its formation began by the end of the first century. And by the end of the second century, the complete canon of Scripture, exactly as we have it today, all 66 books were being popularly recognized by the church at large, which is still a century before 
Constantine was even born. Now, another quote regarding all of this that he says in the book. He says, Constantine commissioned and financed a new Bible. He, just, he, he, made it, he wanted a new Bible. He's like, hey, you know what? We've had enough of that old one. I want, I want a new one. Now, what he did is he had a Bible put together, and Dan Brown says he omitted those Gospels that spoke of Christ's human traits, the fact that Jesus is just a mere man. And he had the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, embellished to make it appear as though Jesus was actually godlike. Well, again, Dan Brown is mistaken. There's absolutely zero historical evidence that Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John were ever embellished in the 4th century. Neither is there any record that any of these texts were ever even recalled in order to be embellished. Guys, think with me carefully on this. It would be absolutely impossible to recall thousands of handwritten manuscript copies of the Bible that had been widely distributed throughout the Roman Empire for centuries by the time Constantine got into power. It would have been absolutely impossible. And if an event like that had happened, if he had recalled the Bible and then reissued a new one, there surely would have been some sort of mention of that by the Christians in their writings or history of the church. And there is none. No mention that Constantine ever tampered with their scriptures or reissued a new edition of the Bible or had Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John embellished. Then he says the earlier Gospels, there's another quote from the book, you know, he says the earlier Gospels, the ones that, you know, according to Dan Brown, supposedly tell us the real truth about Jesus. He says, these ones were outlawed. They were gathered up and burned. Constantine made that, made, wanted to make sure that the real truth about Jesus, the fact that he's just a mere man, that it never made it out. So he gathered together all those authentic Gospels by the real disciples that really knew who Jesus was. And he had them all banned, gathered together and even burned and destroyed. Now, let's talk first off about this comment about earlier Gospels. Dan Brown has aired here again. There are no earlier Gospels when compared with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The earliest Gospel records of Jesus' life that scholars hands down, hands down agree upon today are the four Gospels that are in the New Testament. Liberal and conservative scholars agree that the so-called Gospels that Dan Brown thinks are the earlier authentic Gospels weren't even around until the second or third century, long after the time Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's Gospels were written. How many of you caught the National Geographic special a week or two ago on the Gospel of Judas or heard about it? Have you guys heard about the Gospel of Judas? That could be lumped together with these other writings. Guys, that wasn't written by Judas. The Gospel of Thomas wasn't written by Thomas. The Gospel of Philip wasn't written by Philip. They were written in the 2nd or 3rd century by a group known as the Gnostics who were seeking to infiltrate the church with their false teachings. They knew that the church would not accept any writings that weren't written by a close associate of Jesus or one of the original disciples. And so they tried to pass off these spurious, fraudulent writings as though they were written by one of the originals. Oh, call that the Gospel of Thomas. Maybe they'll believe it. Call that the Gospel of Judas. And people today are going, wow. Judas, my, Judas was actually a hero. He's the one that actually, you know, I don't know if you guys follow the news story on all that. People are actually buying into these. Guys, even the most liberal scholars who have investigated the Gnostic writings, they, they easily realize and have written numerous articles on these kinds of things that the Gnostic writings didn't even come on the scene until the late 2nd or early 3rd century. There's no, and there's no evidence that Constantine ever even gave any orders to destroy any of those later heretical Gospels. The Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, and so on. 
Then Dan Brown says, this will be the last quote we look at here on this fourth point. He says, fortunately for historians, some of the Gospels that Constantine attempted to eradicate, you know those ones that supposedly tell us the real truth about Jesus, they managed to survive. Oh, Dan Brown gets his readers all excited. Oh, finally, we're going to get to know the real truth about Jesus. And then, so you ask Dan, Dan, where are those authentic Gospels about Jesus? Where are they? Next sentence. He says, the Dead Sea Scrolls, discovered in the 1950s, hidden in a cave near Qumran in the Judean Desert. That's them. Guys, this is absolutely laughable. Absolutely laughable. The Dead Sea Scrolls had nothing at all to do with Jesus. The Dead Sea Scrolls contained copies of every Old Testament book, except the book of Esther, as we noted earlier, some commentaries on the Old Testament, and, and, and by, you know, I mean, the Old Testament definitely alludes to the fact that a Messiah was coming, but it doesn't mention him directly by name, okay, as being Yeshua or, or Jesus, and so um, when I say the Dead Sea Scrolls had nothing to do with Jesus, I'm not you know what I mean. I'm basically saying they don't mention Jesus specifically by name. There were some extra biblical works they found in those caves, um, some secular documents and business records. But guys, guess what? The word Jesus does not appear a single time in any of the Dead Sea Scrolls. None. In fact, numerous books, journals, articles have been written on this very topic. The Dead Sea Scrolls, and author after author has documented and clearly stated that the Dead Sea Scrolls did not contain anything mentioning Jesus. And the reason why is because the Qumran community, which wrote these documents or preserved them, had nothing to do with Christianity, okay? New Testament Christianity or Jesus. They, in fact, many of their documents that they, they possessed were actually written centuries before Christ was even born. So for Dan Brown to say the Dead Sea Scrolls, thank goodness he says for, his, for the historians that we finally have the Dead Sea Scrolls, they tell us the real truth about Jesus, I think very clearly unveils how deceptive he's trying to be. How many readers are actually going to go look into the Dead Sea Scrolls? No, they're just going to read that and go, wow, I never knew that, and, and buy right into it, and a lot of people have. Now, fifthly and finally, let's wrap things up here. The S in our acronym reminds us of how the Da Vinci Code errs when it speaks about the singleness of our Lord. The singleness of our Lord. Right out of the book, he says, I won't bore you. One of the characters speaking here. He says, I won't bore you with the countless references to Jesus and Mary Magdalene's union, speaking about their supposed marriage. This character in the book makes it sound like, there's, oh, there's all kinds of historical references you know, the fact that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married. He says, more specifically, her marriage to Jesus Christ, it's a matter of historical record. Now, if you just investigate the history, you'll discern that these things are actually true. Again, how many of the readers are actually going to take the time to investigate the historical sources in the first century to see if there are actually any historical references to Mary Magdalene and Jesus' supposed marriage? Dan Brown, not only say that Jesus was married to Magdalene, he goes on to assert that Mary... Magdalene and Jesus had a child together whom they named Sarah and that it was Jesus' intention that Mary Magdalene actually become the head of the church after his death. Now, Dan Brown says that it was the greedy, power-hungry, male chauvinist disciples that kept that from happening. 
Peter, John, they, got, they caught wind of Jesus' plan to have the church led by a woman, and they said, we're not going to have any part to do with that. And so what did they do? Well, Dan Brown says that they forced Mary and poor little Sarah to run for their lives. And where did they run? Dan Brown says they ended up in France, where their bloodline continues, where Jesus' bloodline supposedly still continues to this day. And ever since, Dan Brown says that the church has conducted the greatest cover-up in human history. That the men who oversee the churches in the world today are seeking to keep this information suppressed so that we can keep power over the church. That we can keep our jobs. God forbid, you know, God let women, you know, oversee the church. Now, we know why God has put men in charge of the church, don't we? Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, because God chooses the foolish things to confound the wise. Uh, That's my theory, but... Now, all of this talk about Jesus being married to Mary Magdalene is ridiculous, and scholars from every end of the spectrum have pointed out how there are no actual historical facts to support Dan Brown's far-fetched ideas. It's long been believed by scholars from every persuasion that Jesus was not married. The New Testament writers made no mention of a wife when he was in ministry, no mention of a wife at his trial or crucifixion, no mention of a wife after his resurrection, even though... They repeatedly spoke of Jesus' other family members, Mary, Joseph, you know, his brothers and sisters, even by name. Certainly if Jesus was married, they were not ashamed to talk about the fact that he had a family. There's nothing wrong uh, being married. Marriage is something that's God-ordained. It's not a sin to be married. and would, would not have really even changed the situation much if Jesus had been married. But he wasn't, and we know that's the case. Dr. Paul Mayer, who's a Harvard graduate, a best-selling author, and now a professor of ancient history at Western Michigan University, has spoken out on the supposed marriage of Mary and Jesus. And he said this, if there were even one spark of evidence from antiquity that Jesus even may have gotten married, then as a historian, I would have to weigh this evidence against the total absence of such information in either scripture or the early church traditions. But... There is no such spark, not a scintilla of evidence anywhere in historical sources, even where one might expect to find such claims in the bizarre second century apocryphal gospels. There is no reference that Jesus ever got married. Now, John Dominic Crossan, he's one of the most liberal scholars alive on the planet today. He used to be in charge of the Jesus Seminar, this liberal theological think tank. He himself even agrees that Jesus was not married. He said there is no evidence that Jesus was married, multiple indications that he was not, and no early text suggesting wife or children. Dan Brown in his book does seek to back up his claims with a little bit of evidence. He says the Gospel of Philip. In the Gospel of Philip, Mary is referred to as the companion of Jesus. And then he says in the original language, in Aramaic, the word companion actually means wife which is laughable because the Gospel of Philip was not even written in Aramaic. It was actually written in a language known as Coptic. So Dan Brown, again, distorts the facts, and there's no evidence to back up what he has to say. One of the few things of which the vast majority of liberal and conservative scholars agree is this. Jesus was single. For Dan Brown to suggest in his book that this marriage is a matter of historical record again demonstrates his willingness to go against the facts to advance his ideas. Now, the facts seen through a careful examination of church history 
archaeological evidence, the manuscript evidence, the biblical evidence, and the research of dozens of respectable, conservative, and liberal scholars overturn all of Dan Brown's fictitious theories, guys. The facts are on the side of biblical, historic Christianity, and you can rest assured that that is the case. If you've read this book and have had any nagging doubts or questions about the credibility of you know, the Christian faith or the reliability of the Bible, you need to rest assured this morning that that book, The Da Vinci Code, is built entirely upon the sand of Dan Brown's own fanciful imagination. That is the truth. <clears throat> now, we've examined how the book is inaccurate in five different ways. I pray for you guys, as my brothers and sisters, that God would use you in the weeks ahead to talk about some of these kinds of things with people who go and see the movie. Guys, we have an amazing opportunity right now to use what the devil means for evil for good. People are going to have Jesus and the Bible and Christianity on their mind like perhaps never before here in the next couple of weeks. We can ask them if they've seen the movie. We can ask them what they thought about it and dialogue with them and tell them about the real Jesus. Tell them about the reliability of the Bible. Talk to them about some of the evidences that we've discussed today. God wants to use us in that way. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, Lord, we just thank you Lord, that we could have this time this morning to be equipped and to discuss these things, God. And Lord, we find them to be strengthening to our own faith. And Lord, we do pray that this time was worthwhile, God, that it would be um, a time that we could take some of this information out into the public square, out into our workplaces, out into um, our family gatherings and stand up for the truth in love, in humility, of course, Lord, and share with people regarding not only the problems in the Da Vinci Code, but also regarding the truth regarding our Lord and Savior. Lord God, we desire to be lights for you and to be used mightily by you. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would come upon us, Lord, that you'd bring to our remembrance some of these things we've discussed today, Lord, and that we would um, be used by you, Lord, to steer people toward the truth. And God, we do pray this morning, if there's anyone here in our midst who would be interested, perhaps for the first time, Lord, in acknowledging you, acknowledging the truth, surrendering their life to you, and realizing that you, Jesus, truly are God who came in human form to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, we pray that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, we pray that you'd help them to turn to you today, to cry out to you and just acknowledge very simply um, their sinfulness, Lord, but also lay hold just by simply believing in you, God, of your grace and your free offer of forgiveness and mercy. Help them to do that, we pray today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.